and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. I'm Darren Hefty along with my brother Brian. We're going to be talking about bean leaf beetles and how to get them under control in your fields. We'll also be taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD or you can email us radio at agphd.com. All right, Brian, bean leaf beetles is the topic today. And you know what? We're going to miss one of our tools that has been used for years to stop these things, lores ban. And that makes guys nervous that, man, I really liked having lores ban in the mix. I love how it kind of went to a gas underneath that canopy. It seemed like we got pretty good control on a lot of these insects like bean leaf beetles. But there's still a lot of good options on the table. Well, I don't know if I would say a lot. I would say you've got seed treatment that's not too bad, but the bigger thing is the pyrethroids. I, I mean, foliar, the pyrethroids are really hard to beat. I like them a lot when it comes to bean leaf beetle control. They're excellent, very inexpensive, two or three bucks an acre. So I guess the main thing that I wanted to make sure that everybody understands is, look, there are some reports out there now saying, oh, bean leaf beetle mortality is bad. Don't get suckered into thinking, well, they said I'm not going to have bean leaf beetle because mortality, uh, or however you want to look at it, bad, good, whatever. There are a lot of the bean leaf beetles that died over the winter because it was cold. Maybe. <laughs> I have always found insects are resilient. And even though we think, oh, the population is low and 99% of them were killed, there could still be a lot out there. So we just encourage you, scout on a regular basis, and then keep in mind that bean leaf beetles carry bean pod model virus commonly. That's a terrible disease for soybeans, especially for seed quality. But there, there are a lot of people out there who just say, hey, if you have almost any bean leaf beetles in the field, you've got to get them under control right away, even though it might not be any kind of threshold, because they're going to spread that disease, and that disease could absolutely impact your yield, especially when we're looking at soybean prices. Yeah, they aren't as good as they were last year, but they're still pretty darn good. Yeah, it's still excellent prices. We were just chatting this morning, a couple of guys and me, we were talking about if you look back at the last 30 years of selling your soybean crop, how many years price beats today? And yeah, we could have had another dollar or something, but uh, how many years beats today? Not very many out of the last 30 years. Yeah. Yep, that's right. But yeah, bean leaf beetles are something we've been fighting on our farm for about 20 years now. Prior to that, really didn't see them. The challenge with them is they overwinter as adults. They're super hungry then when they emerge in the spring because they've been just surviving all winter long, and they can feed very quickly on those very small soybean plants. So usually you're more at risk when you've got a lot of soybeans planted around you in the past couple of years because then the bean leaf beetles don't have very far to move if they're just going from a, what was a bean field last year to now your bean field that's right next door this year. They move in pretty quick. So anyway, I, I'd just say be scouting for these bean leaf beetles. They're easy to identify. They have a black triangle on their back right behind the head. So that's how you identify that it's a bean leaf beetle as opposed to something else. I don't care what color it is. I don't care how many spots they have. Just look for the triangle on the back right behind the head. You know you got a bean leaf beetle. Just go out and kill them as quickly as you can with a pyrethroid and you'll be in good shape. Hey, that's a good point on the identification. They do look a little bit different. So sometimes they'll be, um, you know, different colors. Yeah. But 
And right. sometimes they'll have more spots or something like that, but that yep. triangle is the one thing that's consistent between all the different bean leaf beetles out there. But, you know, when you're out there looking for bean leaf beetles, there can be other bugs as well. And when you talk about using the pyrethroids, I think we cover most of our bases there using a pyrethroid where we aren't going to miss too many things at that time of year. Maybe, I don't know, don't normally see aphids and soybeans that early, but there, there could be some other bugs out there too. So as you're scouting, don't just say, well, I see bean, bean leaf beetles. I'm just going to not think about it anymore. Do take a look a little further okay. to see what else there is. Yep. Yep. But here are two things I want people to think about. Number one, there could be some insects that are small that will get bigger later, like grasshoppers. You'll see them. They'll just be nymphs. And you think, oh, no big deal. I, who cares? But eventually they're going to get to be adults with wings and they're going to eat a tremendous amount compared to when they're small. But the other side of this is you want to spray those bean leaf beetles quickly because if you don't, then they're going to mate, they're going to lay eggs, and now you're going to have a problem again at some point down the road, maybe even yet this year. So you don't want any of that. You just want to do everything you can to get these things stopped quickly. So I, 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 And you stop and think about it for a second here too. Late in the season, when you start talking about late season bugs, we, we uh, as farmers will usually say, okay, well, I'm done. I'm not spending any more money on this. It's the middle of August, whatever, I'm done. Well, guess when bean leaf beetle shows up late in the season? A lot of times it's when you've got pods and they start pod clipping. And now you run into two things. Number one, you don't want to spend the money. Number two, you uh, may do damage to your plants by going out there with your sprayers. You have to call somebody in. And then on top of that, you go, oh, wait a second here. What's the pre-harvest interval? I'm up against the pre-harvest window, but these bean, bean leaf beetles are out there clipping my pods and I'm losing yield every day. All this gets solved if you just kill them in the spring before they get the chance to lay eggs, and now you have the problem again later in the year. All right, uh, let's dive into the Ag PhD mailbag. i got a couple interesting questions here. It's the mailbag! First one comes from Devin down in Iowa, and he said... Uh, my wife noticed there's a mountain-sized pile of free wood chips near where she works. And she asked, couldn't we spread that out on our land to build organic matter and nutrients? I know I'd have to put some nitrogen with it to rebalance the N to C ratio, but of course, I've got chicken litter. So that could help break it down and, and take care of some of that too. So just wondering what you guys think about this. Uh, do you think we should go for it trying to build organic matter with wood chips? Nope, I wouldn't do it. It's going to tie up a lot of nitrogen. So we've done this before because of our Ag PhD field day site. We had one year in particular where I had to cut down some trees. And I thought, you know what? Let's use these things rather than burn them, bury them, whatever. So we chopped up these trees, put the wood chips out. Oh, my goodness. That year and especially the next year, we had, a, we had massive nitrogen deficiencies. And we were putting out extra. Yeah, but that's, it takes a crazy amount extra. And it lasted for years, no doubt about that. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. When it comes to cereal disease protection, Prosaro Pro 400 SC fungicide from Bayer makes all the difference. With three effective active ingredients for overlapping control of foliar and head diseases and a flexible application window for head scab, it's formulated to lower dawn, protect yield potential, and promote superior grain quality. Prosaro Pro. The future of plant health starts here. Visit prosaropro.com to learn more. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it 
depends on what you put in. And Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutrisha and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at headsupst.com. Control the toughest weeds with overlapping residuals. Lock in the longest lasting control for your soybean fields. A pre-emergence application of an authority brand herbicide plus a post-application of Anthem Max herbicide establishes the overlapping residual control key to safeguarding your soybean seasons. This pairing is a heavy duty economical strategy against Palmer Amaranth, Waterhemp, Kosha, and more. Visit your FMC retailer or lockin.ag.fmc.com today. Always read and follow all label directions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. And at this point, I haven't seen any bean leaf beetles out in our fields, but it won't be long and we'll be seeing bean leaf beetles uh, emerging as the adults that overwintered out in our fields and trying to lay eggs, trying to get that next generation coming down the road. We want to stop them on the early side. So that's why we're talking about it today, just to give you a heads up, because there are decisions you can make right now that can make your life much, much easier dealing with bean leaf beetles. Got Eric Rebeck with us right now with FMC to talk about this. How you doing, Eric? Hey, good, Darren. How are you doing? I am doing well. I'm doing well. So we're, we're getting ready to put some soybeans in the ground. Haven't put any in yet. And we're already thinking about, all right, how are we going to manage all these challenges that we know are going to come up? And one of them that we see almost every year is bean leaf beetles. So talk to us about this bug. Help us understand uh, the life cycle a little bit and when the best times to take a shot at it are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it doesn't hurt to be thinking about this particular pest early. Um, especially given that overwintering adults, um, we might see some pretty high overwintering survival due to the snow cover this year. Um, so, you know, typically up in, um, in the northern latitudes, we see uh, one generation per year. Um, you might see two in some southern um, locations in, in southern Minnesota, for instance, and in southern South Dakota. Uh, but, uh, yeah, trying to target and, and scout for any damage that might be appear, appearing early on in the season from those overwintering adults is key to success down the line. All right. When we're scouting early, what do you need for scouting? Is this sweep network? Is this just walk through the field and look for these little guys? It seems like they aren't quite as jumpy as some other bugs. Like they'll they'll sit there on the leaf and, and let you look at them. So uh, it's not like you have to be out there at – um, and just get lucky to, to catch them. What are, what are some of your tips? Morning, afternoon, evening, when's the best time to do it? Yeah, um, they, they do tend to be quite skittish, actually. Um, they'll drop from the leaf um, as, as you're approaching the plant um, down into the soil. They can kind of get lost relatively easily. Um, so the, um, 
the best thing to do is, um, is, is get out there early. Like I said, you don't need a sweep net when, you know, you've got that early vegetative growth. Um, you can be just looking at uh, looking for signs of damage, some early feeding on the leaves. Uh, they'll be removing some small circular uh, patches of defoliation on those leaves um, and, uh, and scout that way. Um, later in the season, however, though, as you're going out, um, you might need that sweep net, absolutely, because of their skittish nature. All right. When it comes to control, there's a, a lot of different things that a person could do. For for us, we think the neonic seed treatments are helpful, and bean leaf beetle is one of the bugs that we probably get the best efficacy on out of those seed treatments. What what do you see? I know you've done a lot of research on this stuff over the years too. Have have you seen those neonics be helpful? Um, yeah, the seed treatments can be helpful, and certainly that is one management strategy for uh, for this pest and and a wide variety of others. I mean, that's that's part of the reason for for getting some of those neonic uh, seed treatments down. Um, you know, with with planting. Um, now, hey, Eric, Eric, uh, speak, down, yeah, speak yeah, about that ahead. too with that seed treatment. Uh, you have to yeah. they have to take a bite out of the plant, correct? Yeah, they do. That's right. Um, so these are not contact insecticides. Um, it's it, they do have to take a bite of that plant in order to get that uh, to get that active ingredient in inside them. Yes. So when you think about bean pod model virus and some of these other things, eh, seed treatments aren't necessarily going to protect you from that. You you ju- you still have bugs that could be taking a bite out of your plant and and passing that. that- yeah, and that that is that is true. That's right, because you're going to have some delayed activity with um, the material have to being have, having to be ingested. Uh, they will um, they, they do have the possibility of transmitting uh, bean pod uh, bean pod model virus, uh, bean mosaic virus, uh, you name it. So so yeah, you do still run that risk um, if if that population happens to have a, a high viral load. All right. One thing that's changed in in agriculture really in the last 10 years, there's been a lot more folks uh, using products that have residual post-emerge and and guys are getting out there pretty early to make sure they get some rain on there to to activate it. So we do see at that point where guys are scouting, we do see insecticide getting mixed in. Do you have a preference? Because I know there's there's many different generations of pyrethroids and uh, some of the older, cheaper products are out there, but man, the the second and especially third generation pyrethroids offer some benefits and, and when it comes to length of control and broad spectrum insect control. Yeah, that, that's true. Um, yes, indeed. Um, and so on the FMC side of things, uh, we primarily have uh, a couple of different um, insecticide families, uh, primarily the pyrethroids, um, products like Mustang Max and, and Hero, um, folks are probably familiar with. Um, Elevest is a relatively newer one that um, combines a pyrethroid with a uh, uh, Renaxapir active, um, so you get a, a broader range of control for, for multiple different kinds of pests, um, two dual modes of action in that. And um, when all else fails, um, resistance issues can come up with pyrethroid-resistant uh, populations. Um, we do have dimethoate out there still as kind of an old tried-and-true chemistry um, that can be applied for, for, uh, bean be- uh, for, uh, for bean leaf beetle management. 
okay, this this is a good point that you bring up, pyrethroid resistance, because the, the pyrethroids are cheap, and they mix with about everything. Man, they're getting used on a lot of acres out there. They've been super useful for us on the farm, but we're worried about that. And uh, talk to us about LFS just a little bit. So you got a pyrethroid in there, which we know what that's going to do. What does the Renaxapir add to that? And are, are there some different bugs that you say, you know what, this would be the place to try it if you have this bug or that? Yeah, um, so kind of as I mentioned earlier on, um, so combining the two dual modes of action there with that Renaxapir active, uh, that particular compound is highly active on caterpillars. And so, of course, we know soybeans are susceptible to a wide range of species of, of leaf-feeding caterpillar pests, and that Renaxapir active is going to go a long way towards, uh, that, that's in that product, in that LFS product, it's going to go a long way to helping um, manage not only the bean leaf beetle that you're concerned about um, in this particular case, but also some of those those leaf beating uh, caterpillars that are out there as well. Good, uh, good um, um, grasshopper control as well with that. So, so again, just that you get that broader range of control uh, for for a broader range of species with uh, that dual action in Elevest. Now, you mentioned grasshoppers, too, and as we're scouting early this season, how early should we be watching the ditches, too, for moths and, and hoppers and other things that could be moving in? Yeah, um, you know, those hoppers, depending on the species, um, they can move in early in the season, or they, you know, other species might be more of a problem later in the season. So it's never too early uh, to be, be looking in those ditches, uh, looking at field edges where they're going to invade first, and looking for signs of trouble from, from some of those other critters that are that are moving in as well. We're talking bean leaf beetles on today's program, and we've got Eric Rebeck on right now with FMC. Uh, Eric, when it comes to, to beetle management, we talk about steward when it gets into corn rootworm beetles. Does steward ever fit into this equation? Um, it could, and um, and that's certainly something to, to look at. Um, it is not, you, you kind of caught me off guard with that question, Aaron, because uh, I did not look at the label um, for Stewart, and so I'm not exactly sure if it's labeled or not. But well, I know for, good point. for yep. us, Eric, uh, Mustang Max, so much cheaper, and it's been working. But I'm nervous about resistance, and I'm looking at other things. Sure. Well, for example, we got alfalfa weevil larvae that we're scouting for right now. I haven't seen any yet, but as it warms up here, yep. we're probably going to see some in the alfalfa. And Stewart is a nice option. And then we avoid any of the pyrethroid resistance that we're seeing in some of the western states. So it's just, yep. I don't know, it's a good, I'm glad you're on today. I'm glad you brought up Elevest and talk a little about dimethylate. And and uh, I, I mentioned Stewart here, which I know we'll talk more as we get into the season about that one, because growers just need to be looking at all these options that are on the table to, to deal with resistance and just the broad spectrum of insects that we've got coming. Hey, Eric, we got to let you run here today. We'll, we'll talk more about that, Stewart. I know we've got uh, uh, alfalfa, weevil larvae, and other bugs coming up that we'll be discussing. Yeah, bring me back on. I'd be happy to uh, chat with you more about Stewart and its fit for alfalfa wheel management. All right. Sounds good, Eric. Thank you so much. We're talking bean leaf beetles on today's program and taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Win the war against weeds in your soybean fields with fierce herbicides from Valent USA. With three different formulations and multiple modes of action, you're sure to find the right fierce product to protect your operation from tough weeds like Palmer Amaranth and Waterhemp. 
Give your soybeans a strong, clean start with up to eight weeks of residual control with the powerful pre-emergence protection of Fierce Herbicide. Ask your local retailer or visit valen.com fierce to find the right Fierce formulation for you. Always read and follow label instructions. Get what you spray for results. Get the lasting control more corn growers trust with Anthem Max Herbicide from FMC. Apply pre-plant, pre-emergence, or early post-emergence to control tough broadleaf weeds and grasses before they cost you. For superior control with a low use rate and long residual, make the easy, high-performing choice. Visit anthemmax.ag.fmc.com to get results. Always read and follow all label directions. The value of your farm building is in its ability to protect what's stored inside. From the smallest fastener to the trusses overhead, Morton leaves absolutely no detail to chance. It's how we ensure that your building stands the test of time. From concept to completion, we take pride in providing a high-quality building to last for generations. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. My mom's got a new case IH tractor and it can do it all. Bail hate all day. See in the dark with its powerful LED lights. Hook up all the implements. Shift like a race car, steer with ease. And it can also cool my juice box. Yeah, her Case IH tractor can do everything she needs it to. Looking for a tractor that can do it all? Check out CaseIH.com. Hi, Greg Souter. Uniform emergence is critical for high ear count and yields. Good emergence starts with the closing of the seed trench. It's almost impossible to pinch the seed trench closed from the top, no matter what style of closing wheel you use. That's why 360 Wave closes the seed trench from the bottom up. 360 Wave rolls moist soil from the bottom of the V trench over the seed, completely engulfing the seed, eliminating all traces of the trench. That means better germination and emergence. Learn more at 360yieldcenter.com. At Corteva AgriScience, we want to keep farms healthy and productive, today and tomorrow. That's why we're investing in a robust pipeline of naturally derived biologicals. Meet Nutrition and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer. It's a sustainable nitrogen fixation product that facilitates crop growth and optimizes yield potential. With the fluctuation in fertilizer prices, Utricia N is a reliable solution. It can be used alongside your traditional nitrogen program to enhance your ROI this year. For more information, visit Corteva.us. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. And our topic is bean leaf beetles. And I can't tell you if this year is going to be a horrible bean leaf beetle year or not on your farm. But I know this. It's certainly an insect we've been scouting for for the last 20 years on our farm. And they can cause a lot of problems out there. There's no doubt about it with some of the diseases and stuff that they're associated with. So getting some... Uh, Getting some good information here from entomologists. We've got Jeff Whitworth on right now down at Kansas State. How are you doing, Jeff? Good. Good day to be in Kansas. 
<laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, you know, I think about Kansas, and it it really varies across the state. And you just get almost every. It's kind of like it South does. Dakota in this regard. You you probably got some areas got too much water, other areas that don't have enough, and everything in between. How does that impact some of these bugs? Like like bean leaf beetles, for example. When you have a drought year, does that mean bean leaf beetles are going to be worse, or or there aren't going to be an issue, or anything like that? Well, generally, anything that stresses plants uh, more causes more damage by the insects. Uh, bean leaf beetles, as you said, are probably, historically, have probably been our number one soybean pest uh, throughout Kansas, throughout the whole state. Um, the bean leaf beetle overwinters as adults. Um, they go into alfalfa early on. Matter of fact, we were checking for alfalfa weevils earlier, and we were picking up some adult bean leaf beetles. Um, they hang out and they wait for those first little germinating soybean plants, and somehow they're great at finding them right off the bat. And then they fly to the um, first germinating soybean plants, and they start feeding on the foliage. They have to have a little food after overwintering um, before they start laying eggs. And they lay eggs, as everybody knows, I hope. They lay eggs around the base of the plants, um, and those larvae hatch. The larvae are, in my mind, just really closely identified to corn rootworm larvae, oh, except I'm beetle, 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 they, they look just like it uh, without, and, and I mean, I have a hard time telling them apart unless you uh, put them under a microscope. I'm glad you um, said that, Jeff, because I, I was digging, this has been, gosh, 15 years ago, I'm sure. And I thought, what in the world? They get corn rootworm larvae here. What are they doing here? And then I realized, <laughs> oh, they're bean leaf beetle larvae. And so you're right. They, they do look very similar. They do. And the easy way to tell them apart, if they're on soybeans, they're bean leaf beetles. If they're on corn, they're corn rootworms. Uh, but they do the same kind of damage. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that the larval uh, bean leaf beetle feeds on the roots and the root hairs of soybeans. So a lot of times if early on, if you look up in your soybeans and you have kind of a, you know what the growers like to call a weak spot or a place out there where the plants look a little more stressed, go out and pull up some of those plants. And a lot of times you'll have these little white larvae hanging on the roots. Those are bean leaf beetle larvae and they'll feed on the roots. Normally, they don't, there aren't enough of them to cause a big problem field-wide, but occasionally they can you know, cause a spot in the field to, to look stressed. But early on, the bean leaf beetle adults, they defoliate uh, the leaves. And what they do is they, they make a very characteristic round or oblong-shaped hole in the leaf. That really doesn't worry us too much because soybeans are great uh, at, you know, being resilient from that early defoliation. But what I worry about then is the second generation the adults will feed on the pods. And when they're feeding on the pods, sometimes they can uh, transmit a disease, but even if not, they'll feed on the pod. That opens up that pod so that the seed inside can desiccate or you know get a disease or something else can get to it. So that's the time that bean leaf beetles can really do some damage is when they're feeding right on that marketable product. Um, and they will do that as long as there's green pods in the field. So they, they start early, they'll feed on the foliage, and then they'll start feeding on those green pods. And they'll feed on the green pods clear up until 
you know, September or October to whenever they're all senesced enough so that there's no more succulent green pods out there. And that's when they can actually cause some damage to the marketable product, the bean itself. I got a couple of questions for you, Jeff, on just where do these, you said the, the adults like to lay their eggs around the base of the soybean plants. Do you see them going to other fields to do this, like corn rootworm beetles, where they, they can lay eggs in soybean fields or bean leaf beetles? Mostly they're going to leave them in the soybean fields. No, the, the, all I've ever seen them is being in soybean fields. They lay eggs around the cracks and the crevices and under the clods and in soybean fields. Um, you're right. Corn earworms, they like pollen, so they'll go to soybean fields and feed on soybean pollen at certain times, and sometimes they'll lay a few eggs. But the soybean uh, problem, the bean leaf beetles, mainly just confined to soybean fields. Now, if you had a, a field with a lot of volunteer soybeans, there may be some there also, but primarily they're around just in the soybean fields. And, and you know what? They're really, really good at finding those first uh, soybean plants in, in the first, even in a cornfield that was soybeans the year before, a few straggling soybean plants, it'll, they'll just be loaded with those early season uh, bean leaf beetles in many cases. So what you're saying is it's probably best to be the second guy that plants in your area, not the first. <laughs> yes. Well, you know what? And I get asked a lot about seed treatments. Uh, when I talk about seed treatments, I'm talking about insecticides, not fungicides, okay? Uh, insecticides work on bean leaf beetles, but those insecticides are only going to last, you know, 21 to 28 days. And usually by the time the adult bean leaf beetle gets there, the insecticides dissipated. Um, so that won't work. But, yes, the first, uh, the first guys to get out in the field and get their – Soybeans germinating will probably have the most early season bean leaf beetle adults feeding on the foliage. How about cover crop situations, uh, high residue no-till fields, those kinds of things? Do you see better survival there? Do you see them having a, a negative impact from bean leaf beetle? I know there are some other bugs that, that can hang out there, but are bean leaf beetles one of them? Yes. Uh, when we go to minimum tillage or no tillage, um, we leave that residue on the soil, and a lot of our insects that overwinter as adults, i.e. the bean leaf beetle, um, they will stay right there in the field and overwinter. Same with chinch bugs in the case of uh, sorghum and corn, but they will stay right in the field. So if you plant soybeans in that field next year, um, there's already a pretty good healthy population there. If not, if you rotate to something else, they will still go uh, to wherever the uh, soybeans are. but Yes, you're exactly right. They, they, we found that they're being pretty successful overwintering in minimum till or no till fields with quite a bit of uh, uh, residue left. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm not a big fan of tillage, and I love cover crops on our farm. So I, I mean, we're still going to do those things, but we just have to realize yeah, we may have to manage a little bit more insect pressure that kind of comes with it. How about speaking about management? Do you see pyrethroid resistance? Do you have any issues going out with bean leaf beetles, or are the pyrethroids still working well? We have not seen any. Um, we just tested for. Uh, some pyrethroid resistance three years ago, uh, and we did not find any insecticide resistance. Now, I get that a lot. I get the complaint a lot that uh, the insects are resistant in soybeans, but 
you got to remember these insecticides are contact insecticides. So it's based on getting enough insecticide throughout the canopy to contact the insect that it will actually control it. So, you know, when you're when you're flying it over at one to three, maybe five gallons an acre, uh, and you got a good canopy there, it's a little tough to penetrate. We have not found insecticide resistance uh, in bean leaf beetles since the last time we did it about Good. three years ago. Good. Well, that's that's very helpful because <laughs> pyrethroids are still uh, among the cheapest options, so it's it's been uh, a favorite for bean leaf beetle control. Hey, Jeff, uh, thank you so much. We really appreciate having you on again. This is Jeff Whitworth with Kansas State University. Have a great spring, Jeff. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Talking about bean leaf beetles on today's show, but we're also taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844 844- 44 Ag PhD. We'll be right back after this. Last year's fertilizer cost too much. This year's fertilizer still costs too much. So maybe next year, uh-huh, maybe next year, instead of paying whatever the market dictates, you should find a new source. Source from Sound Agriculture unlocks more of the crop nutrients that are already in your soil so you can use less fertilizer and capture the yield you count on to turn a profit. I said to turn a profit. That's more like it. Learn more at sound.ag. This season, get medieval on Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia fungicide from Valent USA. Here to shield your sugar beets from the treachery of Rhizoctonia, Excalia delivers excellent staying power, keeping your sugar beets from being conquered. Stay one step ahead of Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia. Ask your retailer or visit valent.com slash Excalia to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. When it comes to cereal disease protection, Prosaro Pro 400 SC fungicide from Bayer makes all the difference. With three effective active ingredients for overlapping control of foliar and head diseases and a flexible application window for head scab, it's formulated to lower dawn, protect yield potential, and promote superior grain quality. Prosaro Pro, the future of plant health starts here. Visit prosaropro.com to learn more. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. What does it really mean to provide the best crop nutrition? With AgroLiquid, You're getting a -a one-of-a-kind approach, one that caters to your specific agronomic needs. You're getting a crop nutrition plan that maximizes your fertilizer applications from every drop, all while accounting for your management practices and the products you're already using. But it's not just a product. It's peace of mind, knowing we've thought of everything. That's the AgroLiquid way. Apply less, expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. This is Mike. Hey. He's getting a quick haircut at the local barber school. It's only five bucks. How bad can it? Yikes. Don't be like Mike when it comes to weed control. Get the job done right the first time and plan ahead with Status Herbicide. It delivers elite corn safety and reliable performance, so you don't have to deal with more problems than you bargained for. No, 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 no. Status Herbicide from BASF. Always read and follow label directions. The hard-working, independent spirit of rural America can often be isolating. It's not often discussed, but mental health issues are real. Now's the time to lead by example 
Talk openly and show that a strong mind is just as important as a strong body. FMC is proud to be working toward ending the misconceptions around mental health. Through awareness, guidance, and action, together we can uproot the stigma. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're broadcasting from the Morton studio today and taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. And as always, you can email us, radio at agphd.com. Uh, and I did get a number of emails to get to here in the Ag PhD mailbag, Brian, so we'll jump back in. I got this one from Brett in Northwest Iowa. He said, you guys helped me increase my yields and now I've got a new problem. Residue breakdown. I'm getting 80 bushel beans. I thought going to say paying taxes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a lot of complaints about that around this time of year too. But It is tax season. He yep. said, nope, his problem is he's raising 80 bushel beans and 250 bushel corn, and they are leaving a lot of trash. So he said, considering putting out uh, a residue breakdown product like Decomp this fall, but I thought I heard Neil Kinsey say that you could still see a lot of two. If you still see a lot of two-year-old corn stalks, there must be a nutrient imbalance. So I'm just curious. We aren't no-till, but we're pretty minimum till. My one-pass field cultivator in the spring uh, is, is rough this year. I'm just wondering: is it the lack of moisture the last couple of years, or do you think I have a nutrient imbalance, or what should I do to break this residue down? What breaks down residue is microbial activity. So you got to think about how do I increase microbial activity? What I'm usually after, number one, is drainage. So we're going to talk about air in that soil. The next thing is what do you have for soil pH? If that pH is, let's say, very high or very low, you're going to have less microbial activity. So that's number two. And number three, you just want to raise as much crop as possible. So that's where this nutrient balance thing really comes in because let's put it this way. If you have 300 bushel corn versus even 200 bushel corn, I, I, I realize we always think about what does the plant bring in, right? Uh, what's it bring in for water? What's it bring in for nutrients? But let's talk for a second about what that plant puts out. It puts out a lot of micro, or I should say a lot of microbial food in the form of sugars and other things that go into that soil. And so the more you feed those microbes, the more microbes there are. And then when that crop finishes in the fall, there are all kinds of microbes there that are going to remain hungry and they're going to break that residue down faster. Also, if you can get even a little bit of dirt there, you're going to find more microbes end up on. In other words, let's say even if it was something like a little a uh, coulter that runs across the, I mean, like a coulter cart or something, anything that runs across the field at the end of the year, you get a little bit of dirt there. So now you have more microbes on top of that residue, more enzymes, everything that you need, and that will speed it up too. You don't even have to do full-scale tillage or anything like that. Even just a little tiny bit of dirt will help you. So all these things can make a difference. And yes, I mean, adding a microbial product where the microbes are more specific to, hey, their job is to break down residue. I mean, those things are good. You also may need some more nitrogen and sulfur at that point, too. Those are also things that help feed the microbes while they're breaking down high-carbon residue. 
Thanks for the question. We really appreciate that, Brett, and, and good luck to you here on the residue. I love having the problems, though, of 80 bushel beans and 250 bushel corn. That's awesome. Congratulations. Uh, I get this one from Cynthia, and Cynthia said, We've got a small dairy farm in eastern Ontario, Canada. Our soils have been tightening up, and through research and our son's college professors, we've found that our soils are too high in magnesium. Now, just a note, Brian, uh, she did not include a soil test here, so just, just talking about it. She said yeah. it's it's yeah. not a common problem in our area, magnesium um, in excess, so trying to find some help on this. We use our dairy manure fairly heavy on our soils and have been told that the dairy manure could be the problem. Would using a manure conditioner help for the long run, or what would you suggest we do? Okay, first of all, I doubt that the dairy manure is the problem. That dairy manure has a lot of good things in it, including some sulfur. A lot of people will flush out excess magnesium with sulfur. They will also work on adding more calcium to the soil to change that calcium-magnesium ratio. So those are the two most common things we look at. Either way, you want to make sure you have good drainage out there. So what I'm curious about is what that soil test looks like. Because some people say, well, we've been putting a lot of dairy manure on and we look at the soil test and we go, yeah, you ha certainly haven't been exceeding anything. All your levels are still low. We run into other people that have been putting a lot of manure on and everything is sky high. So without knowing that, it's really hard to make a recommendation. But my assumption here is you either need more sulfur or more calcium in that soil. Right, and I don't, I don't think I would use a manure conditioner. I really don't. Yeah, I, I agree with Brian. I don't think the manure is necessarily the problem, but you can do a full analysis no. on manure and the soil, and you can see for yourself if, yeah. if you're putting on an excessive amount of magnesium out there. Uh, but I know we've had some high magnesium issues on our farm, and it does make that soil tight and sticky, and uh, getting more calcium out there has been the solution for us uh, to change that calcium-magnesium balance up. Typically, we're shooting for... Uh, calcium, I guess, depending on the soils, but somewhere around 70% base saturation. And uh, I'm not sure how heavy your soils are, but we, we often like that magnesium down in the 12 to 14% range would be ideal in many of our soils, but it could be a little different for yours. So it's, you can see a lot more calcium compared to the magnesium. So something to watch for. All right, uh, I got this one from Brian up in New York. He said, I want to switch gears here, guys, and talk lawns just a little bit. Uh, you, you have helped me in the past on this, and uh, I've got an issue. So I've been using Freelex out on the lawn to kill broadleaf weeds. Here's my challenge, though. Uh, we spread some straw to cover the last part of some lawn. It must have been seeding out there. And the straw had some wheat seeds in it. And now that started growing in the fall and is green up already and, and ahead of my grass this spring. So just kind of curious, mm -hmm. will Freelex do anything to that wheat? Uh, can no. I just mow it? Will it die on its own? Yep. Or is there something yep. else I should mix in here to to uh, take no. that wheat out? I wouldn't. I wouldn't even worry about it. It's an annual. So as long as you keep it mowed down so, there's, so it doesn't go to seed, you're going to be just fine. So... Could we potentially kill it out of there? Sure. There's just no point in spending the money, in my opinion. Just mow it down, it'll be fine. Now, if the grass hadn't started growing yet, if you just had seed out there, you could spray Roundup and kill wheat off, for example. That would be one option. 
if the grass yeah, but- is already coming and the wheat is already growing, uh, what would you think about using something like Drive or Quinclorac? Or would you go to right. something like, well, Callisto wouldn't really knock that out either, I guess. Um, no, Callisto would ding it up some. The other thing you could do would be a really low rate of Roundup, just enough to severely damage that wheat, but not so much that it ends up killing the grass. But like I say, I wouldn't do any of that. I just keep mowing. All right. Well, that's the cheapest solution. Uh, okay. This one comes in from JP. Uh, guys, just curious about your nitrogen recommendations in accordance to cation exchange capacity. Where did you get the 10 times the cation exchange capacity for how much nitrogen the soil could hold? Uh, and is that something that uh, is scientific or, or how did you come up with that? Nope. Nope. Um, that's just something that we got taught I don't even know, 30 years ago probably, and then just about every fertility expert we talk to, people like uh, Neil Kinsey that we'll occasionally have, we just say, all right, well, what do you think of this? Just as a ballpark. And so that's kind of the number that we've used over the years. It's going to get you relatively close, but at least gets you thinking because if you got a 5 CEC, you're going to treat your nitrogen management totally different than if you have a 30 CEC. So no, it's not an exact thing. And we're going to tell you too, Timing makes a huge difference. So if I put out units in the fall and I don't plant any crop until spring, that's whole different than if I say, oh, I've got a low CEC, but my crop, my corn is already knee high and it's going to grow three feet in the next week and a half uh, and it needs a crazy amount of nitrogen. Okay, whole different story. So now I'm not too worried about loss in that case. But I would be worried about loss in the case of, oh, I'm going to apply it way in advance. So, I mean, there are just other things where you have to use some common sense. So that's really what this is all about. No, it's not a scientific thing, but we just, from our experience over the years with thousands of farmers, we have found this will get you relatively close. All right. Thanks for the question, JP. We'll be right back with more of your calls and questions after this. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. When we told growers that New Bear Premium Trivolt Herbicide for corn delivers visibly clean fields for up to eight weeks, they were a bit skeptical. Um, we'll see how it works. So we decided to prove it. We set up cameras in multiple cornfields, treated them with Trivolt, and filmed for 24 hours a day. For eight weeks, we saw a variety of weather conditions, and Trivolt worked. See for yourself at trivoltinaction.com. Trivolt is a restricted-use pesticide. Consult your state pesticide regulator for specific restrictions. Read and follow pesticide label directions. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. Get your planter ready for spring with Germinator Closing Wheels from Farm Shop MFG. When you buy 12 rows or more, get free shipping or 20% off an end zone bin system. So call Farm Shop MFG today at 712-520-6051. Here at Ag PhD, we're always looking for ways to support the ag industry. That's why at our free Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event Saturday, June 24th, we're giving away more than 100 college scholarships. Join us as we head into the field for hands-on sessions covering everything from how to pull soil and plant tissue tests, ways to improve crop health, the importance of microbiology and farming, and much more. 
Plus, in our comprehensive guide to crop scouting, we'll explore both above and below ground in a variety of crops as we diagnose problems with insects, weeds, diseases, and anything else we may find. As we're giving away tens of thousands of dollars in scholarships to eligible attendees, this day is geared more towards students and young farmers. But anyone with the desire to learn more about agronomy is more than welcome. So whether you're a college student or just want the good agronomy info, this is one event you won't want to miss. Come to the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships Day at Saturday, June 24th on the Hefty Farm near Baltic, South Dakota. Learn more and register at agphd.com. This is Officer Jones calling for backup. 10-4, location? Graber back 40. Looks like we've got Palmer Amaranth, Kosha, some common water hemp. Resistant weeds. Copy that. You'll need a good tank mix partner. I'm sending tough 5 UC. Come out with your hands up! Guys, we're surrounded. Crack down on repeat offenders. Add Tough 5 EC to your post-emergence tank mix. Learn more at toughonweeds.com. Always read and follow label directions. Tough is a registered trademark of Belgian Crop Protection. Head over to your local CNB to get yourself a new John Deere planter or schedule inspections to make sure your equipment is as ready for spring as you are. Visit CNB Operations online at deerequipment.com. That's D-W-E-R-Equipment.com. Morton buildings are made to last for generations. With superior materials, craftsmanship, and best-in-class warranty, we are committed to quality. To learn how we can help you expand your farm operation, visit mortonbuildings.com. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag time where we answer your emails at radio at agphd.com. And your phone calls, 844-44-AG-PHD. All right, get an interesting one here. This comes from Sheila, who says, I've noticed that the soil smells like mold this year. What's going on? Will the grain production be affected? Can this be harmful to the farmers in the fields? Have you ever run across that, Brian, where soil smells moldy? Not really, but I would almost think that's a good thing because I want residue breaking down what breaks it down it's a lot of fungus fungal species so uh, that's mold so i guess i mean i don't think that i'm worried but i'd like to see the soil test and maybe some pictures of what what the field looks like and stuff but without being there in person it's really hard to say but yeah there off the top of my head there's nothing i can think of where i go oh boy this i'm really alarmed by this yeah, this is a spot where I would recommend calling your local extension person or your local land-grant university local and, and say, hey, uh, could somebody come take a look at this? Maybe there's something going on. Maybe nothing, but it doesn't hurt to get another opinion on that. All right, uh, another question that came in. This one's from John. He said, all right, guys, want to talk a little bit about home gardening. I'm using compost in an effort to recycle and also to build my soil, but I also do use some fertilizers, which I apply at the start of each season at a, at a low rate in order to protect my soil uh, biota. Uh, perhaps deep ripping every couple of years would help me with nutrient penetration. What do you guys think? I, I generally like no-till, but I'm willing to do tillage every couple of years if needed. Well, you certainly don't have to do it every couple of years. It could be once every 10 years or something. So it just depends on how, you're, how you are putting that fertilizer out there. If all you're doing is laying it on the soil surface, then that's a problem because 
things like phosphorus, zinc, copper, they are not going to move down in the soil hardly at all. It's going to take forever for them to get well down into the ground. But if, on the other hand, let's say you were already injecting it with, with coulters on your planter or maybe just a, a, some type of coulter cart or something, so you are placing nutrients down two, four, six inches deep in the ground, you're perfectly good. So I don't think I'd worry about it then. But, yeah, the other thing would be if you had compaction you hadn't fixed prior to going no-till, if, let's say, you created a bunch of ruts because you were out there in the fall harvesting and it was a muddy mess. I mean, there are other reasons why you may consider doing that, but it certainly doesn't have to be every couple of years unless you've got extreme situations. All right. Thanks for the question. Good luck to you, John. Get this one from Jesus, who's down in South Texas. Uh, in our area of South Texas, wild common sunflower is just a nightmare pest weed. And typically folks have been using 2,4-D, but what I'm seeing is the normal rates of 2,4-D just aren't working, which leads me to yep. believe it might be growing intolerance or potentially even resistance developing. Yep. I haven't used any of the other uh, herbicides you guys normally are talking about, but just kind of curious. I'm also a little concerned about the vapor pressure out of 2,4-D and if I would see that with any of the other alternatives. Okay, we used to see the same kind of thing with dicamba when that was about the only thing we were spraying, dicamba and 2,4-D like 30 years ago in corn even. But I, I would just say there are lots of herbicides out there that are great on sunflowers. As long as you're killing them when they're fairly small or trying to control them when they're fairly small, not a real big issue typically. With the 2,4-D, there are two concerns I usually have. Number one, you're not using a high enough rate. And number two, you're using too much water. So cut the water volume a little bit, raise the rate of the 2,4-D, and then use the, one of the new 2,4-Ds that don't have all the volatility. When you talk about vapor pressure, old 2,4-D, horrible. Quit using that stuff. Use Freelex or use Enlist 1. So Enlist 1 is the, the product labeled for the Enlist crops. Freelex is labeled for just about everything else. But th that's, I mean, if we're talking 2,4-D, that's what I'm going to do. Now, he didn't say what crop he's in or anything, so I have no idea what we're even talking about here. So it's kind of hard for me to make any kind of recommendation when I don't know what crop we're talking about. I'm just assuming this is grass or non-crop, and that's why I'm saying 2,4-D is probably fine. Because quite frankly, if it's a Roundup Ready crop, I'm just going out and spraying Roundup, and that'll kill it. But we have residual products. we got lots of post-emerge herbicides that'll kill it, lots of different great options. All right, thanks for the question. So anyway, if... if yeah, I was just going to say, if there is a specific crop you want to know a recommendation for with uh, sunflowers, let us know. All right, got this one from Jerry in South Dakota. Jerry said, guys, I've been listening to you talk about silage corn, and to be honest, hadn't been paying much attention, but now... Uh, there's a new dairy in my area, and I'm considering raising silage corn this year. Fortunately, I have heard you say you plan on planting the silage corn a little later than normal, which does buy me a little extra time to make some adjustments. But just kind of curious what you've learned as you've been doing this now for a while uh, with new and expanding dairies in our region. Silage corn could be an option for more guys. So what would you do for silage? And then also just curious about the manure. Uh, they're offering manure on acres that they take silage. Just curious what the watch outs or pros and cons are with the manure too. Let me answer that manure one first because that's way more simple. I'd just say with manure, your number one thing is salt. 
So you always want to get manure tests as you're going along, and you want manure tests in advance. If they don't have a salt reading, you pull the sample yourself or get the sample and send it in for analysis yourself. And I don't care if you have to pay for it yourself. You have to know how much salt is in there. If you don't, what's going to happen to you? Because we've seen this over the years with people we've worked with. Their yields start going backwards. Pretty soon they're killing their soil with the excess salt. So you've got to be careful with how much salt we're talking about. Midwest Labs will recommend 500 pounds per year per acre. But uh, that's if you have fairly decent rains. If you're in a dry area, then it, their recommendation is less. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily the number to go with. That's just what they say. All I'm telling you is if you don't know whatever that number is, we see some people, they're putting 1,000 or 1,500 pounds of salt out there per acre per year. I'm going, whoa, you are going to have a problem in not all that long. So you got to keep soil testing. you got to keep looking at this stuff. And then over time, you'll figure that out. So that's the manure side. Uh, so with the silage end of things, what we've learned, number one, I want lots of nitrogen out there early. We have to have overall good fertility, but I want to make sure I have really good K levels because we want to build a, a good stock, a good plant overall, because we are looking for tall. You've got to find tall hybrids, and we're not saying you have to plant them in June or anything like that, but typically over the years what we've seen is the later you plant, the taller the crop gets, and the reason why is there's more gibberellic acid in the plant the warmer it is. You can trick the plant, and this is what we do on our farm, is use Rise Up Smart Grass. But the problem with that is um, you can go once, maybe twice, and it's not going to be as good in, in our experience as planting at least just a little bit later. So, so my point is we can plant grain corn where we're at, according to crop insurance, April 10th, and I'm all for that. I want to plant my corn as early as I possibly can. That's how you get the most yield. We'll probably start planting a lot of our silage corn right now and then through, let's call it the 5th, 10th of May, something like that. So it's kind of a mid-season plant, you know, in our, our planting window. And then you absolutely want to spray some gibberellic acid on it, foliar when it's in the V2 to V4 kind of stage. So those are probably our top tips. And then the last one I would say is don't be cutting the population. You've got to keep the population fairly high. It doesn't have to grow crazy high, but you want to force the plants to grow taller. So the fewer plants you have, the shorter they're going to be. You want to force them to grow taller so you end up with more tonnage. But you follow these things and then do all the normal stuff we talk about for getting high grain yield, and then you can have both. You can have good tonnage with lots of grain. It's something the dairy will love. Yeah, the other thing is just timing that harvest right. So when you when you're as you're going through the growing season here, keep an eye on your crop. I I love looking at some of the satellite imagery and those types of things because you're going to see some variability out in fields, I'm sure. Uh, but just trying to to figure out which field to harvest first and get that harvest order right too. Hey, yeah. Hey, last quick thing. Uh, we love cover crop after silage. We like oats because it dies off um, in the winter, and then we don't have to. Uh, terminate it. We're in a dry area. We've got to conserve all the moisture we can. I want nothing growing into the spring, but we've absolutely seen benefit from cover crop in the fall and reduced erosion. I agree with that 100%. Yeah, I like that cover crop following silage. You got enough growing season to get it to do, but you got to be quick. You got to get out there as soon as that silage gets cut, get that that uh, cover crop seeded right away. You need every day. Thanks for the question. Good luck to you. Really appreciate hearing from you. Thanks for listening to today's program. Be sure to join us again each weekday 
for more Ag PhD Radio.